0: Hello and welcome to the Journalism.co.uk podcast, a show where we bring you insights from media industry experts to help journalists do their jobs better. I'm your host, Jacob Granger. Today, we're going to be talking about how to make your newsroom neurodiverse friendly. Neurodiversity encompasses a wide range of experiences. We'll be talking about just two of those, autism and ADHD, with neurodiversity consultant Nick Ransom. Nick is a freelance journalist and also someone diagnosed with autism and is seeking a diagnosis for ADHD. This has a variety of pros and cons towards how he socialises, communicates and processes information as part of his work. This year he also produced the BBC documentary Inside Our Autistic Minds with TV presenter Chris Packham. Neurodiversity should be an important part of any newsroom's inclusion efforts, but once through the door, these people need to feel accepted and supported. We'll be talking about just a few ways autism and ADHD affects Nick in his work as a journalist, and what newsrooms can do to support those in a similar boat. But that's precisely the point of today. There are so many types and manifestations of neurodiversity, it really isn't as simple as just turning down the lights. So what's the answer? Stay tuned to find out. Nick, welcome to the Journalism.co.uk podcast. Thank you ever so much for coming onto the show and chatting with me. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's great to be here. It's great to have you on the show. It's great to have a listener of the show uh, come on the show and share their experiences uh, with us as well. So um, yeah, it's really great to have you on. Today, we're going to talk about neurodiversity in in journalism. Uh, Neurodiversity encompasses a wide range of different experiences for different people. And so... We're, we're going to be able to pick up on two today being autism and ADHD, which you have some experiences with. I wonder if you'd be able to start off and share that with our audience.
1: Yeah, hundred percent. So I was diagnosed when I was about twenty at university. I was always fine when I was at university, and yeah, it was it was just at home when I got really stressed and really struggled to to relax and get household chores done, and I'd always be totally burnt out when I got home. So when i was at, at school or when i was at, at work or at university i'd i'd do that classic masking thing which is essentially putting on a front and containing all your emotions and forcing yourself to look normal and what led to the diagnosis was essentially as i was saying i was i was always a bit of a, a struggle at home at, when i was at school i'd be fine but then when i got home i'd kind of tear the house to shreds and if you know if dinner was late or the printer broke or, or something like that it would be it would be quite distressing so yeah, I was always a bit of a nightmare for my parents. And then, yeah, I was coming home, obviously, during the summer holidays during during university. And, and I was obviously now out of my teenage years. And they felt like, hmm, there's something still bubbling away here. So my mum went to her GP and essentially said, you know, what's wrong with my son, but in a nice way, obviously, in a slightly polite way. And uh, and said, yeah, and said to me, you know, you might be autistic. What do you, what do you think? And I and I didn't really know what to think first and kind of just left it and, and thought about it. And then, a few months later, I was at a, a pride event. Uh, I represent a lot of communities. And uh, it was obviously very loud, lots of people, you know, lots of music. And I just felt like that day, there was something different. And I couldn't quite put my finger on. And when I got home or driving home, actually, I thought maybe maybe mum's right, maybe I am autistic. And I did the classic zero to 100%, like totally believe in it now. And yeah, I, I was diagnosed about six months later, which in terms of the current uh, kind of world that we live in it was it's incredible so i know how lucky i am to have had that diagnosis really
0: mm. we talk about autism as a spectrum um and so you know there can be a, a wide range of different experiences autism can manifest itself quite differently for different people what does it mean for you what what sort of things do you experience
1: yeah, as I say, at, at school and at work, it's it's never really been a problem. But at home, I think it's it's just that ability to be calm and relaxed and get household stuff done because it's there's something in my mind, and and perhaps this isn't true, but it's it's seen as the, the easiest easy stuff. I always find that quite tricky. So, you know, making dinner, like I don't really. Cook that much. I'm a, I'm a ready meal kind of guy. <laughs> um, cleaning, I'm, I'm useless at because I'm somebody that that always strives for perfection, and you you can never do these things perfectly. So I, I just end up getting really really stressed and really um yeah anxious doing it. And it's yeah. So I've now got a cleaner, and uh, yeah, it, it's all these sort of household stuff that I'm I'm terrible at, like packing to go away and traveling. When I'm driving, you know, I'm driving. Um, I hate traffic, and I get so wound up in traffic, it's terrible. And I just I just can't control my emotions when I'm I'm at home because it's supposed to be it's supposed to be easy, right? It's supposed to be you know relaxing. It's supposed to be the time off. And at work, where there is that pressure to be to be quite good at something, and you know, I don't really feel that pressure because I've got a real confidence in myself, and because I'm so obsessive about media and have been from a young age, it's it's actually not really that much of a problem because I, I trust my my logical mindset so much more. So so yeah, I mean, most people obviously like the weekend, and look forward to the weekend, and and I'm somebody that just you know has a real capacity to work and right that does cause problems when I overwork and sometimes yeah I, I, I then end up even more stressed at, at home I, I do struggle a bit with my, my partner who does very well to put up with me and uh yeah <laughs> it's um it's not always the smoothest at home but we we make we make do really
0: sure how much of that is a potential overlap with ADHD because I know you're going in for a potential diagnosis there as well
1: I don't know. I think at at work now, I've got to a point where I've realised that I don't know if I could really do five days a week at eight hours because uh, it, it's just that that concentration that you require in the workplace is is quite intense. And so, I do need a a bit of a, a breather, really. So, even even when I'm sort of working at home and pitching ideas as as a journalist, I think I very rarely work in in one long go unless I've found something that that's kind of got me into a very hyper-focused sort of state. But as I say, that attention span's not great. And I'm always kind of dipping out and doing other things. And I get distracted very easily. So, yeah, sometimes I work quite late into the into the night and just kind of spread my day out a bit more, really. So, so yeah, freelance life allows me to be a bit more flexible. And I think, hmm. you know, journalism itself is also very fast-paced. And, and I was in a world where I was making documentaries. The last one I did was the, the Chris Packham Inside Our Artistic Minds one. And that was very yeah I enjoyed it it was great fun it was one of the best programs I've ever made but even even that which was one of my favorite projects i was I was starting to, to lose concentration during during the day sometimes and I would yeah very much feel like goodness me this is quite suffocating this this nine to five kind of world so so it's interesting I think I think the freelance world is so much so much better for me because it allows me to Yeah, can control my time. I I know I I still do a few shifts here and there that are kind of eight hours, but, you know, they're they're so rare that I can, can kind of control my 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 concentration a bit better there. Nick is just one example of
0: neurodiversity, and we haven't even begun to explore OCD, dyslexia, dyspraxia and so on. His combination of autism and potential ADHD is a tiring one. On one hand, he can hyperfocus on one subject, and then find himself getting sidetracked on another. It's commonly the case that neurodiversity is an inconsistent experience and news leaders can find that difficult to manage. Another challenge is masking, which is a term neurodiverse people use to describe suppressing their traits in order to fit into their surroundings. The answer to both fundamentally comes down to understanding people's limits and preferences, respecting people's boundaries and triggers, and being open to flexible
1: ways of working. I think that's that's kind of a very neurodivergent kind of thing is that you're trying so hard to to get by that you're, you're yeah you, you spend a, a lot more energy but yeah there, I mean neurodivergence is quite contradictory and we often have these things where yeah it, we sort of have two things fighting against each other and I think there's a sort of hyper focus that you get with being autistic and some ADHD people with ADHD uh, experience that as well but but in terms of the yeah the, the concentration that that comes out it can kind of fight against the two but it's uh, you know I've not been diagnosed with with ADHD yet it's just something that I'm starting to explore in, at, at the moment because I think it's becoming more and more of a, of an issue I think because even even being a freelancer and trying to sort of manage my own time I still still struggle to concentrate so it's 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 interesting really interesting um yeah in terms of how it works in the in the workplace I think that very obsessive mentality which is so helpful in terms of my work can be detrimental in the sense that I kind of become quite I used the word this morning actually painfully passionate which <laughs> means at uh, at work if somebody's you know not not paid much attention to detail in terms of um, graphic design or there's been some some mistake or, or 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 there's just not much focus on on certain certain areas which I seem to be like quite a basic you know branding as i say in terms of accessibility you know to me I'm I'm very very stuck in my ways as to how i present my information and and that kind of thing when the kind of basics aren't followed i get really wound up by it and so like you know out-of-date logos are one that really wind me up um and it's it's really as i say it's it's really minor stuff that not many people would would care about but i think to me as i say that the basics i think once you've got the basics right and the details right then everything else kind of follows the bigger picture paints itself but there's lots of instances in the workplace where i just think how on earth has somebody not even thought about that and like even leaving a door open on set or, or something like that. Just all all the small little things really wind me up. I don't know. You know how BBC Two is usually written BBC Two with the actual word number two? Um, mm-hmm. And I, people write it with the number two and it was changed a few years ago. So all those, sort of, that's how my mindset works. It's all these small details that my mind picks up on. And I I, I kind of keep telling myself, Nick, it's now a big deal, but my mind just can't turn off to those sort of things. So it's, do, do you find yourself spending a lot of time dwelling over these things and... Yeah, I do, and I'm I'm getting better at trying to work out what's what's important. So I, I do genuinely try and try and make an effort to go right. That's that's not a big problem in in the uh, in the bigger picture, but it yeah, it does it does end up spending a lot of a lot of energy in my mind. Kind of a thinking, why does my mind think this way, and B, why well, <laughs> why does nobody else think this way? But so that that that's caused a lot of frustration over, over time. And, and as I say, I'm getting better at kind of dealing with that in a, in a workplace now, where I I am much better at kind of trying to let things go a bit more, but it's that, that's, that, that's the difference in the workplace is that, yeah, that obsessive mentality can be both an absolute help because it, you know, it does make your work quality of work much better, but then if nobody else is following those sort of standards, then it can be, can be really difficult. Um, so it's a yeah, right. blessing and a curse, I guess.
0: <laughs> For sure. Do you find yourself dissociating much throughout the day? Yeah. What, what do you mean by that? Like in terms of just, just like, you know, what I see in other people is when they've kind of reached their limit on, on things that are causing them to become overwhelmed, they tend to zone out a bit and almost become like paralyzed because of all of these other, you know, yeah. frustrations or, you know, things that are
1: irritating them or, or stuff like that. Yeah. It's it's an interesting question. I don't think so. I mean, I think like the, the example that comes to mind, actually, I was doing a shift recently and I think like for me, you know, and, and most autistic people, structure is so important and, when I'm my mind is kind of naturally looking and pacing my energy up until the end of the day and there was a big breaking news story with about half an hour to go and I'm thinking oh this doesn't look good and at that point I don't know why the light suddenly seemed so much brighter and everything Mm -hmm. just felt so much more intense and because my my mind was thinking right I've got to sort of recalibrate how much energy I've got left and and it was it was a case where Yeah, I really struggled um, and I very much overthought it, but somehow sort of kept kept going. And again, on the outside, you just never have been able to tell um, because, you know, I think you get into that space as an autistic person where you just just end up masking your whole life and and you don't really ever give anything away um, unless unless it's absolutely um, a breaking point. But yeah you know I managed to get through that you know it ended up about another hour um, of my shift so I I don't think we went on too much longer past the the time but it was it was something that really kind of threw me because I think at that point when the the clock hits 10 o'clock say whatever it was um, your mind's starting to think well this could be anything now I Mm. don't know don't know when I'm going to leave you know and it it, it was yeah quite an overwhelming kind of feeling that so yeah it, it doesn't really impact me that much in the workplace and I'm aware that a lot of people have much more more needs but uh it, it it does still trip me up occasionally and uh it's it's frustrating because I, I know they are usually very small things that i'm worrying about you know
0: yeah how are you with sensory overload because tv studios and newsrooms there's a lot of that going on people on the phones hmm. tap 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 at the keyboard bright screens
1: does that impact you at all it doesn't really i mean I, I, don't, I haven't really met anybody who who it hasn't really um but but i'm i'm one of those people i mean I'm somebody that as I say, because I'm usually occupied, because I'm usually working away. I'm, you know, I'm calling somebody or I'm writing a script or whatever it might be. Um, uh, my mind's so much more, more occupied. And uh, the sensory challenges that come at home when my mind is trying to switch off and there's, there's less stimulation, I guess. So I, you know, I think one of the things I find really painful at work is when I've got nothing to do and I sort of, <laughs> yeah. then I'm clock watching and then I'm sort of thinking, Oh gosh, I need to look like I'm busy. But then, and, and that whole kind of social dynamic comes into play, but, uh, but yeah, no, no. In, in terms of being out on the road, and and I think because I am, I just love media so much. My mind is, is just so away with the away with the fairies, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the fairies of, of media world, yeah, the media fairies. Um, I'm yeah, I'm, I'm in the dreamland, so I, it doesn't really play much of an impact. Do you work well under pressure under the constant deadlines? I do, yeah. I think I think yeah, and, and then this is where I've got a friend who's who's got ADHD, and she does really well with with deadlines. And I think sometimes you need that focus. And I'm sure everyone's a bit like this, but it's one of those things that yeah I I do actually do quite well with a bit of bit of structure and time and and I think when when I've just got an open brief you know I've got a few projects that are just sort of open ended at the moment and we're sort of looking into it it can be a bit more bit more tricky so and I think that's maybe where the freelance life is a bit trickier for me in the sense that I'm always it's I'm managing my own time and I'm kind of responsible to me and and without that structure that I I need and that motivation it, it can be quite tricky to to start again after a know after something's gone out and i've then got to find my next project it can be it can be quite tricky so so yeah in terms of um yeah i forgot what your question was now which i'm told is another adhd trait (laughs) it was it was a bit it was a bit (laughs) it was about
0: deadlines and pressure but you know the reason i'm asking all of this is just to kind of get a profile Hmm. of it's like just for one person who is on this neurodivergent scale and of course other people with autism adhd and some of these other uh, neurodivergence um will experience these things differently. And there's no single set way of that's how an autistic person will experience this one situation. I know people with ADHD who struggle enormously with procrastination, Mm. leaving everything to the last minute. I know people with autism that, you know, just screens, they'll just completely get lost in that world and you can't break them out of it at all. So uh, the point I'm trying to make and illustrate here is that your yours is one single experience, and other people will have different ones. From the outside looking in, it's it's you know it's it's difficult. It's complicated. It's it's complicated. <laughs> but I think th- as we'll come on to maybe talk about here is is how to support our colleagues who who, who have di- neurodivergence. It's not about one single solution. It's about an attitude, right?
1: Mm. 100%. Yeah. Flexibility is is the attitude we've really got to try and cultivate a lot, a lot more in our industry because I think there's always been this way of doing things. This is how we do the media world. And actually, if we want to have better ideas and we want to have better quality products, then we're going to have to have neurodivergent people, which means being more flexible. And actually, it, you know, they are often very small things. It might, as I say, just turning that light down or... Having somebody you know sit sit another side of the office where there's less hustle and bustle, I guess. It, it making sure that door is closed. Yeah, exactly. It, <laughs> it's sometimes really small things, and it, you know, I, I think it, you know a reasonable adjustment doesn't really have to be. It could be just having the same seat every day.
0: But Nick, they're not they're not small things though. To you though, well, that's it. That's that's yeah. the big thing. It might be small mm. in the grandiose scale of what's happening in a hustle and bustle newsroom, but to you, I guess the point I would really want to underline and underscore here is it's not a small deal to. People like mm. yourself.
1: Mm. Yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right, and I think it, it can make a massive impact just to have. I don't know, even if it's just a pair of headphones or uh, or some some bit of kit that allows you to work a bit more clearly. Like processing is a big part of the autistic experience, and I always watch TV programs with with subtitles because actually my mind can't sort of transcribe, I guess, into my head in, in real time. So I don't, not very good with what people are, are saying. So uh, so when I see words written out, I'm at much better at processing and that why that's why it really winds me up when programs don't have subtitles which obviously helps everybody um and you know it could be transcribing of a, a press conference or something like that so just seeing stuff i'm much better at processing stuff by 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 words interestingly weirdly because i'm even though i make tv um so it, it it's very small things that, that could just really help somebody get their grips around something and and therefore produce to produce some some incredible work and and incredible results that not many other people would think of um but you know i think often people see neurodivergence as a very rare thing but actually one in five people are, are neurodivergent so it's it and that, and that includes dyslexia dyspraxia tourette's you know all these various things mm. and it, it's yeah it's weird that we don't really um yeah pay much much attention to it it's it's, it's slightly odd
0: <laughs> right And so, you know, maybe for our audience listening in who might have colleagues or managers who have some form of uh, neurodivergence, what's potentially their role in all of this,
1: you think? It's just been very supportive, I think, and and that sounds obviously very basic, but it it is genuinely just you know growing a culture that is around flexibility and and how do you work? And I think so. One thing we did on the on the Chris Packham documentary, which which I worked on last year uh, inside our autistic minds, um, we we had these profile docs where every time we we went out and filmed with a contributor, we asked them to give us an insight as to you know what their autistic experience was like. So how do you operate with people, and how how do you operate with um you know food and all these all these big questions that uh, that actually really helped us get a sense of, of how they operate and so so when we actually went out to film it was it was much much easier um and so it surprises me these days that we don't take that that kind of learning into our workplaces in, in the sense of right let's ask everybody loads of questions when they arrive not overwhelmingly obviously you know and they don't get optional questions as well I should say um, and, and really get a sense of how people how people work and how people interact with other people and what they're most nervous about and what their triggers are and all these various things and it seems slightly ludicrous that we don't really do that in the workplace so I mean one thing I'm kind of advocating for now in, in my work as a neurodiversity consultant is to do these sort of I guess crew profiles or, or newsroom profiles where actually you get a sense of what people's kind of biggest biggest challenges are, I guess, in terms of whether it's socialization or whether it's technology or, or whatever it might be that somebody's not very good at. Because then actually everybody's clearer and then once you've got this clarity from the beginning, then everybody wins. And I think that's that's something that I don't see why we we don't do more often really. Um, I think the
0: Well, right, because you don't want these micro tensions and these microaggressions really in your Workplace anyway, and the more you can eliminate those, the more productive you'd think the workplace would be.
1: Yeah, and and it's a total waste of time to be honest. If if everybody's arguing halfway down the line, you might as well start at the beginning and work out what each other's (laughs) all about, you know. So I I know I think the BBC are looking at uh, looking at various things where I think it's called a a disability passport at the moment, but I think there might be sort of looking at at an inclusive passport, and it makes sense. Just get get as much information of people as, as you can at the beginning, and and kind of take it from there. So. We're in the midst of increasingly progressive cultural
0: attitudes towards neurodiversity. There's a whole depth of content, especially on social media, initiated by millennials and Gen Z, about the subject. Advising people like Nick, who've got late-life diagnoses, teaching people how to support neurodiverse partners and colleagues, and helping neurodiverse people feel comfortable in their own skin and minds. News organisations need not only to factor neurodiversity into their representation efforts, but make sure that once through the door, neurodiverse people feel looked after and respected. We've heard this all before with the different forms of diversity, but neurodiversity really brings with it particular ways of working, whether that's routine, workspace dynamics, sensory issues, and so on. Often, these can seem like small-time issues for neurotypical people, but are in fact big deals for neuroatypical people. The best thing newsrooms can do is adopt flexible and empathetic leadership to take these needs on board case by case. But where do you draw the line? Can you really please everybody? Here, Nick refers back to his BBC documentary, Inside Our Autistic Minds, for inspiration.
1: We were filming uh, a scene uh, just in a a desk. It was the kind of creative sessions that you see where... Our contributors and, and Chris Packham and, and um, our creative team were coming up with ideas about how they would make this this film about their autistic uh, experience. And essentially, I can't remember quite what it was, but there was there was uh, I think some pens on the table and they were very disordered. And one person liked it really ordered, and um, somebody didn't like it really ordered, and, and somebody felt it quite you know soothing that actually the pens were all over the place. Um, but yeah, that one person was trying to rearrange them, and and obviously the irony also was that the the sound recordist wanted it to be a quiet room and somebody was twiddling the pens to tr- try and try and relax because <laughs> it was obviously quite an intense environment and it was quite a soothing thing to be you know playing with the pens um so there was lots of competing demands going on there and it's not something you can immediately solve is it i think um i think it was something that again we just kind of had to kind of mix up a bit for for a while and kind of let everybody have their turn but it's yeah, then back to, com- to continuity areas, isn't it? And, and that kind of stuff. So it was it was quite a tricky situation. I don't know if there is a solution to that. I think it, I think it does just come down to kind of compromise, doesn't it? And putting, splitting it down down the middle. But I do often feel for people who come to me and say, oh, Nick, you know, <laughs> neurodiversity is so complicated and we've got so many different, you know, because it, it could be that you've got, I don't know, five people in your newsroom that are all neurodivergent and they all want the lights at different temperatures or I don't know what it might be. Um, and it's it's not an easy thing to deal with. So, I think it is just just having open conversations and being, being honest. And I think that's something that neurodivergent people often really like is just black and white honesty. And I don't really mind if it's particularly blunt. I'd rather you just tell me, um, whilst also said in a nice, encouraging way, I'm sure. I don't want this question to sound too cynical, and I want to ask it in the most sensitive way possible. But
0: I think a lot of neurotypical journalists might listen to that and think, well, why are we squabb- squabbling over pens? Why are we squabbling over lights? Mm. And I think it's difficult to understand the seriousness of that if you don't really have the empathy and the awareness of how neurodivergence really affects people. So what would be kind of your message to neurotypical people to just get a real sense of empathy and understanding for what it's
1: really like for the for the neurodivergent lived experience. Yeah, that's a really, it's a really really good question. I mean, I think neurodivergence as as we were saying it comes in so many different guises it, it comes from, you know, that's the sensory side of things or the social side. There's so many elements to it, but you know, the sensory side is just obviously one element of neurodivergence, but actually if you can control that then it makes everything so much everything else so much easier. And so you know, even if it, if it is ridiculously loud, um, it, it can be debilitating in the fact that you, you can't you can't process so that you know, you're trying to write a sentence, for example, on, on word or whatever it might be, and you just literally can't get out because your your think your your mind is so sort of stuck to that that noise or or that particular trigger, whether it is the lights or and and that obsessive thinking in your mind is is very uh just kind of endless. So it's it's tricky to it's tricky to kind of get out of that. Um, I think I do also recognise that managers have a, a particular challenge in the sense that they haven't designed these buildings. These are other people that have designed the, these buildings and these buildings might be, you know, hundreds of years old. So it might be that, you know, things can't be made. But I think we've all got to encourage workplaces and operations managers or whoever they are that look after these buildings to actually make them more accessible in the sense of, can you turn that light down within 10 minutes or, or can you We've just seemed to boil it down to, to lights and uh, sounds, but, but actually... But it's really what about what that represents in a broader scale, because that could be
0: substituted for all sorts yeah. of things. That could be substituted for stimming toys or you know any number of things
1: Well, it could be i, I don't know it could be sat um next to next to somebody who and you're sat too close to somebody and you want a bit more personal space and i don't know having the desks move apart rather than just these long desks that we see within within kind of offices you know or open plan offices you know just having a bit more space to allow people to have their own kind of time to process so it, as i say it can be very small things but often they are quite complicated to change um but you know and that's why i think you know, neurodivergence should be considered much more when we're we're planning buildings. And that is something that's happening, thankfully. Um, but but slowly.
0: And I don't mean to simplify neurodivergence down to pens and lights. I, I do appreciate it's a whole lot more <laughs> complex than <laughs> yeah, that. Right. But really my yeah. point is here is, you know, really what that represents for um workplace culture. I guess my question here would be again, a neurotypical person might listen to this and think, well that's just what it's like to work in a newsroom the frenzy of a newsroom is what you comes with the territory you know journalists are supposed to be you know high energy plate spinning news hounds constantly on the dot you know but that's not always possible and not always optimal for people who have some aspects of neurodivergence
1: yeah, and, and I th- I'd say to those those neurotypical people who are perhaps a bit a bit sort of confused that a there's probably a lot of neurodivergent people in your newsroom already that are trying to get by who are probably already great journalists that you're, you you work with every day, um, but but also that that the what what do you say to your neurodivergent audience what do you say to people who are, who read your your content who are neurodivergent and you're not representing their way of thinking and and the problems that they put up with so one in five children are neurodivergent which would suggest that um yeah well one in five children are diagnosed as neurodivergent which would suggest that the whole population is is one in five um that's that's from the ADHD foundation so it's so much more of a, of a problem than you're thinking um and I think it's bizarre not to represent your audience and kind of pointless being there if you're not not there to represent your audience so one thing i advocate for um is a kind of handbook within each each organization that gives you a sense of neurodivergence and how to work within the workplace or, or how to manage neurodivergent people or whatever it might be and also editorial guidelines for talking about neurodivergence like a lot of these things don't exist and that's it's unforgivable really um that you a don't talk about things in the right way and b don't offer the, the right the right access so it's it's something that i think we need a lot more resources in in our in our industry um but what's good is that there is more conversation about it
0: yeah and as you've alluded to as well nick there's a a lot of advantages as well to neurodivergence there's you know what about the idea of just playing more to people's strengths as it were and putting people to task on the things they know they're going to excel at
1: yeah absolutely i mean one one thing i learned very early on and and i guess it's the slight reflective analytical nature nature that that, that comes with being autistic but but actually knowing your strengths and weaknesses and is, is absolutely the biggest biggest kind of win in, in life and, and advantage i guess and yeah in terms of in terms of neurodiversity there's attention to detail there's you know sometimes strong visual thinking it might be long-term memory it might be just the extraordinary detailed knowledge that, that people have um i say that hyper focusing problem solving you know the list goes on the power of neurodiversity is so wide-ranging and and actually it's it's yeah strange not to make the most of this so of course that comes with making adjustments there so it might be that you've got to turn turn that light down or it might be that you've got to very much change change your environment to be able to actually get the best out of somebody but but the wins are are so are so huge that, that that it's crazy I say crazy not to
0: So, I mean, I I do wonder if there's any kind of inspiration outside of journalism that you have seen and and have thought "Hmm, that would be a good accommodation to have in in newsrooms. The one that comes to mind for me would be how supermarkets have introduced like quiet time, which where they've reduced the lights, they they, they dim the lights, they reduce the noise to be more accommodating and welcoming for people who have sensory issues and, and maybe experience sensory overwhelm. So, I mean, A, is that something potentially to consider? And B, is there anything else you know high up on your wish list that you'd like to see in newsrooms?
1: Mm. Yeah, so it's a really good good question actually, and I think that there's, there's obviously a lot of things that can can be helpful. But I think every neurodivergent experience is so so different, so it'd be difficult to say one thing specifically. But I think it is it's just allowing people to kind of control their space a bit more. So it might be that, I don't know, they want the same desk every day. That was something I asked for a few years ago within the BBC um, and was upheld. So it, it's something that, you know, again, it, it might just be a small thing. It might just be, you know, for me actually working on the Chris doc for some reason. Um, I said when I was starting to realize that, you know, those eight hour days were becoming quite intense because I work so intensely, um, I'd sort of fade about three or four o'clock and I often used to say, Gosh, I don't know why I, I can't get through the day. It's so annoying. Um, and anyway, so I, I think what what actually saved me was having a, a catch up at like two or three o'clock with my my manager and having a conversation about right, what have I done so far? What's still left to do? And just kind of re, refocusing the mind. And this is what you need. What the next priorities are because it just helped to have a a conversation with a human. Um, you know, working from home quite a lot. It was quite demoralising just being sat in front of you know my wall and and my my laptop. And so. So actually having a, a conversation yeah, with my my producer was was so beneficial because it A inspired me to write, okay, this is what's next and we're doing really well and a bit more bit more encouragement. So so again, it might just be a catch-up every single day. Um and and that's something that I think you know all neurodivergent people would benefit from. Not a sort of patronizing, are you still okay? Are you still with us? But very much like, How are you doing? You know, is it looking all right? Is there anything I can help with? Um, just a kind of slightly more focused kind of conversation. Um so So yeah, as as I say, it was something that took 15 minutes for for my manager, but actually really got me back on track and got me thinking about, you know, what's next and kind of got me through to the end of the day. Listen, it's been an absolute blast to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks so much.
0: My takeaway this week is that stat. One in five, 20% of your workforce is likely neurodiverse to some extent or another. To that end, Aren't these small changes reasonable asks to make your workforce more optimal? For that to happen, flexible work culture and empathetic leadership is better than any token effort introduced to be neurodiverse friendly. That's not least the case just because of how wide-ranging the neurodiverse experience is. Support needs to be bespoke and tailored. However, I'd love to know what you learned today. I'm on twitter slash x at jpgjournalism, or you can email me on jacob at journalism.co.uk. You can check out all of our other podcast episodes by searching and subscribing to the journalism.co.uk podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. But that's all we have time for today. I've been your host, Jacob Granger. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.